You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Color. This is Lecture 6, given in Dornach on the 5th of December, 1920, entitled Light and Darkness, Two World Entities. From yesterday's talks, you will have realized that a world outlook which thinks of the world as filled with cosmic thought is a one-sided one and Hegel was a particularly prominent exponent of this outlook. However, it is just as partial to think of the basic structure of the world as being of the nature of will, and this was Schopenhauer's outlook. We saw that an inclination to look at the world as though it was the result of thought is indicative of Western man, who tends more in the direction of thought we were able to show that Hegel's philosophy of thought has a different form in Western world conceptions and that Schopenhauer's inclinations are more characteristic of Eastern people, as seen in the fact that Schopenhauer has a special leaning toward Buddhism and Oriental world conceptions altogether. Fundamentally speaking, we can only judge outlooks of this kind if we look at them from a spiritual scientific point of view. From this point of view, it seems abstract to sum up the world under the heading of thought or under the heading of will, and as I have often said, modern times is particularly fond of such abstractions. Spiritual science must give mankind a concrete view of the world again, a view that accords with reality. And it is just this kind of realistic worldview which will open our eyes to why one-sided, partial outlooks, like the above, gain a footing. Hegel and Schopenhauer were, of course, great people and men of genius, and what people of their caliber saw is certainly there in the world. It just has to be looked at in the right way. Let us start today by being clear about the fact that as human beings we experience thought within ourselves. When someone speaks of his thought experiences, he has a direct experience of it. We could not experience thought, of course, if the world were not full of thoughts. For how could we draw thoughts out of our sense perceptions if thoughts were not there, as such, in the world? Now, as we know from previous studies, man's head organization is constructed in a way that makes it especially capable of taking in thoughts from the world. It was formed and structured by thought. At the same time, however, the human head organization points to our previous incarnation. We know that the human head is actually the metamorphosis of the previous earth life, while the human limb organization points to future incarnations. Roughly speaking, our head is a metamorphosis of the limbs of our previous incarnation and our present limbs 
and everything connected with them will be transformed into the head we shall have in our next incarnation. At present, thoughts function in the head chiefly, in the life between birth and death. As we have seen, these thoughts are also the metamorphosis of that which was achieved as will in our limbs of a present previous incarnation. And the will which is active in our present limbs will be transformed into thought in our next incarnation. When you have this picture, you can say that thought can now be seen as what is continually emerging in the course of human progress as transformed will. And will can be seen as that which will develop and blossom into thought. So we can say that will gradually becomes thought. What is will, to begin with, becomes thought later. If we observe ourselves, our head organization will direct us back to our past when it bore the character of will. If we look toward the future, then with regard to the will character which we ascribe at present to our limbs, we must say that in the future it will become the thought organization, namely that which is developed in the head. But we have both these organisms in us all the time. The cosmos organizes us in such a way that thought from the past and will that moves toward the future meet in us. Now if we look at this from the point of view that spiritual scientific research can give us, we see especially clearly how thought and will combine to build man's organism, which is revealed in his whole external organization. Anyone who develops to the level of imagination, inspiration and intuition does not see man's externally visible head only, but he sees, quite objectively, the thought organism man has by virtue of having a head. He sees the thoughts. So we can say that between birth and death, with the faculties which are normal in us at present, we see the configuration of the head. If the faculties of imagination, inspiration, and intuition are developed, then the thought forces which are the basis of the head organization and which come from earlier incarnations become visible, to use the word in a figurative sense. How do they become visible? The only expression we can use for this visibility, which is obviously of a soul-spiritual nature, is that they become luminous. Of course, if the type of people who want to remain materialists criticize this kind of thing, we immediately see what a huge lack there is nowadays of the kind of sensitivity then can grasp what is meant by this. I have stated clearly enough in my Theosophy title and other works that of course I do not mean that a new physical world or a new edition of it appears when we look at man's thought organization with imagination, inspiration, and intuition. This experience is just the same as our experience of light in the physical world. To be exact, we should have to say that external light evoked a certain experience in the human being. Imagination gives him the same experience of the thought element in the head as sense perception gives him of light in the external world.
So we can say that the element of thought, looked at objectively, is seen as light, or rather it is experienced as light. In that we are thinking human beings, we live in the light. We see external light with physical senses. We do not see the light that becomes thought because we live in it. In fact, as thinking beings, we are it. We cannot see what we ourselves really are. If we step out of these thoughts and enter imagination, inspiration and intuition, we then confront it and see the thought element as light. If we are speaking about the complete world, we can say that we have the light within us, only it does not appear to us as light, there, because we live in it. And by having it and making use of it, it becomes our thought. You take possession of the light, as it were. You take into yourself the light that otherwise appears outside you. You differentiate it and work with it. This is what your thinking is. It is being active in light. You are a being of light. But you do not know that you are, because you live right in it. But the thinking you do is how you live in light. And when you see thinking from outside, you certainly see light. Now, imagine the cosmos, and there's a drawing. You see it during the day, of course, flooded with light. But now, imagine you were to look at the cosmos from outside. And now let us do the opposite. We have just been talking of the human head, which has the development of thought within it and sees light outside. In the cosmos, we have light which is perceived by the senses. If we get outside the cosmos and look at it from beyond, what does it look like? Like a web of thoughts. The cosmos seen from inside is light and seen from outside is thought. The human head seen from inside is thought and seen from outside is light. This way of thinking of the cosmos can be extraordinarily useful and instructive if you want to go into it and make use of it. Your thinking, in fact your whole soul life, will become much more mobile than usual if you learn to picture things such as, quote, if I were to get outside myself, as I always do when I go to sleep, and look back upon my head, that is, upon myself as a being of thought, I should see myself as luminous. If I were to get outside the world, outside the light-filled world, and see it from beyond, I would see it as a thought image, as a being consisting of thought, close quote. You see, light and thought belong together. Light and thought are the same thing, seen from different sides. Now, our thoughts are actually that part of us which comes from the past. They are the maturest thing about us and are the result of earlier incarnations. What was once will has become thought, and as thought it appears as light. You will be able to feel from this that where there is light there is thought. But what is its nature? Thought in which a world is perpetually dying away. A past world dies away in thought, or we could say in light. This is one of the world's mysteries. 
We look out into the cosmos. It is flooded with light. Thought lives in light. But it is a dying world that lives in this thought-filled light. The world is perpetually dying away in the light. When a person like Hegel observes the world, he observes the continuous dying away of the world. People who are drawn to the withering, dying, fading element of the world become men of thought. As it dies away, the world becomes beautiful. The Greeks, who were alive through and through with inner human qualities, rejoiced in the outer spectacle of beauty shining forth as the world dies away. For the world's beauty shines in the light as this world dies away. The world will not be beautiful if it cannot die, and as the world dies, it shines. Thus what comes forth from the light of the constantly dying world is beauty. This is how to look at the world qualitatively. Galileo was the first person in modern times to look at the world quantitatively, and at the present time people are especially proud if they can explain natural phenomena by means of mathematics, the deadest part of things, and whenever it is possible, science does it this way. Hegel certainly made use of richer concepts than mathematical ones for understanding the world, but he was attracted to what has reached its maturity and is dying. I would say that Hegel looked at the world like a person standing in front of a tree in full bloom, just when the fruit is about to form but is not yet there, and the blossoms are fully out. That is when the power of the light is active in the tree, light-born thought. This is the way Hegel looked at all world phenomena. He observed life in its fullest flowering, when things had reached the end of their development and were in their most concrete form. Schopenhauer took a different view of the world. If we want to examine Schopenhauer's impulse, we must look at the other pole in man, at what is beginning. This is the will element, which is in our limbs. Our experience of this is the same as our experience of the world in sleep, as I have often mentioned. We experience the will element unconsciously. Is there some way of looking at this element of will from outside, as we did with thought? Let us think of the will in human limbs. If we were to look at it from the other side, from the standpoint of imagination, inspiration and intuition, what would be comparable there to our seeing thought as light? What does will look like when we see it with the developed power of clairvoyant vision? In this case, too, we can also experience something externally. When we see thought with the power of clairvoyance, we experience light, luminous light. When we see the will with the power of clairvoyance, it becomes denser and denser and becomes substance. If Schopenhauer had been clairvoyant, this being of will would have stood in front of him as an automaton, consisting of matter, for on the inside light is thought. Excuse me, let me read that again. If Schopenhauer had been clairvoyant, this being of will would have stood in front of him as an automaton consisting of matter, for on the outside will is matter. On the inside matter is will, 
just as on the inside light is thought. On the outside will is matter, just as on the outside thought is light. This is why I could say in previous talks that when people delve down mystically into their own will nature, those who pretend to be engaging in mysticism but are really seeking their own well-being, the worst kind of egoism, these would-be mystics believe they will find the spirit. Yet if they went far enough with this inner search, they would discover the real material nature of man's inner world. For it is nothing other than delving down into matter. If you delve into the nature of the will, you discover the true nature of matter. Present-day philosophers of nature are merely imagining things when they say that matter consists of molecules and atoms. You find the true nature of matter when you enter into yourself mystically. There you find the other side of will, which is matter. And in matter, that is, in will, you discover basically a world that is constantly in a state of germinating and beginning. You look out into the world, and there you are surrounded by light. In this light, a past world is dying away. You tread on hard matter, and the world's strength bears you up. Beauty shines forth as thought in the light. In the shining of beauty, the world of the past dies away. The world rises in its strength and its power, but also in its darkness. The future world rises in darkness, in the element of matter and will. If a time came when physicists were to take the truth seriously, they would give up speculating about atoms and molecules and would say, Quote, the outer world consists of the past, and what is inside this does not consist of molecules and atoms, but the future. Close quote. And if people were ever to say things like, quote, the past shines visibly into the present, and concealed in the past is the future, close quote, they would be speaking correctly. For wherever we look, the present is always a combination of the activity of past and future. The future actually lies in the strength of matter. The past radiates in the beauty of light. Light having the meaning of revelation of any kind. For what we mean by light in this context also appears in sound and in warmth, of course. Man can only understand what he himself is if he sees himself as a seed of the future enveloped in what comes from the past the light aura of thought. One can say, quote, from a spiritual point of view, man is the past to the extent that he has an aura of beauty. Yet this aura of the past is enveloped in the darkness which accompanies the light from the past. And this carries us forward into the future, close quote. Light is the element that shines to us from the past and darkness points to the future. Light has the nature of thought, darkness of will. Hegel had a leaning to the light that is revealed in the growth process and in the ripest blossoms. When Schopenhauer observed the world, he was like a person standing in front of a tree 
and who is not actually enjoying the magnificence of the blossoms, but has an inner urge driving him to wait for the moment when the fruit begins to swell. He rejoices over the power of growth. It eggs him on and makes his mouth water at the prospect of the peaches that will develop out of the peach blossoms. He turns away from the element of light toward what appeals to him from within, to what develops from the light nature of the blossom and can melt as substance in his mouth and develop as fruits for the future. The world really has this twofold nature, and to observe the world correctly we have to recognize its double nature, otherwise we shall be looking at it abstractly and not concretely. If you go and look at the trees, when they are in bloom you are actually living from the past. That is, when you look at the world in spring, you can say to yourself, quote, What the gods have wrought in the world in past ages is revealed in the blossoms of spring. Close quote. And when you look at the maturing world of autumn, you can say, quote, A new deed of the gods is beginning. Things are withering, which are capable of further development and which will evolve into the future. Close quote. It is not a matter of creating a picture of the world through mere speculation, but of understanding the world with the whole of one's inner being. You really can grasp the past in plum blossom and feel the future in the plum. What you behold with your eyes is intimately connected with what you developed out of the past. What melts and produces taste in your mouth is intimately connected with that which you will, ari- you will arise out of in the future. Maybe that again. What melts and produces taste in your mouth is intimately connected with that which you will arise out of in the future, like the phoenix from the ashes. This is the way to get a feeling understanding of the world. Goethe was actually looking for a, quote, feeling understanding, close quote, wherever he approached the world. For instance, he looked at the green world of the plants, and although he did not have spiritual science as we have today, he saw their green, which had not quite developed to the blossom stage, as something that reached into the present from the part of plant nature that belonged to the past. For the past appears in the blossom, but the greenness of the leaf has not gone quite so far into the past. If you look at nature's green, It is not, as it were, completely dead, not completely taken hold of by the past. See, green in drawing. What points to the future, however, comes out of the darkness. Where the green shades into blue, there is the future element in nature, blue. On the other hand, where the past element is, where things are ripening and being brought to the blossom stage, that is where we find warmth, red where light does not only become brighter but becomes inwardly permeated with strength which passes over into warmth. We should actually draw all that this way. Here is green, the plant world, and Goethe would feel it this way even though he did not bring it to the stage of spiritual or occult science. Then it is joined by the darkness of the point where green shades down to blue. But, where the colors get lighter and warmer. That is where they join up again at the top. But that is where we are 
as human beings. We have within us what the green plant world has externally. Our human etheric body is the color of peach blossom. And this is the color which appears at the point where blue goes over into red. But that is what we are ourselves. So actually, when we look at the color world, we can say, quote, we ourselves are in the peach blossom and green is opposite us, close quote. It confronts us objectively in the world of the plants. In one direction we have the blue, the dark tones, and in the other direction the light, the red and yellow tones. But because we are in the peach blossom, living in it, we can perceive it just as little in ordinary life at present as we can perceive thought as light. We do not perceive what we are directly experiencing, therefore we omit peach blossom and only see the red which we widen in one direction, and blue, which we widen in the other. Thus, we get our familiar rainbow spectrum, but it is actually an illusion. We would arrive at the real spectrum if we were to bend this ribbon of color round in a circle. We usually pull it out straight as we human beings are in the peach blossom. Thus, we can only see the colored world from blue to red and from red to blue, by way of the green. If we could look at it from this point of view, every rainbow would be a closed circle, a cylinder with a circular section. I have mentioned this last point precisely in order to show you how spiritual Goethe's observation of nature was. In his scientific work, Goethe may not have had spiritual science, but his natural science entirely corresponded with spiritual science. It must become very real to us today that the world, including man, is composed of a combination of thought-light or light-thoughts and will-matter or matter-will, and that these in innumerable variations and combinations constitute the real world that confronts us. We must think about the cosmos in a qualitative way, not merely quantitatively then we shall come to understand it. This cosmos is composed of both elements, a continual dying away, the past dying away in light, and a future arising out of darkness. The ancient Persians, from out of their instinctive clairvoyance, gave the name of Ahura Mazda to what they felt as the past dying in light, and Araman to the future in the dark realm of the will. So you see there are these two world entities, light and darkness, light with its living thought and dying past, and darkness where the will germinates and the future comes into being. When we get to the point of seeing thought, not in the abstract but as light, and will not in the abstract but as darkness, even as something material, and when we come to see the warm side of the spectrum connected with the past and the material, the chemical side connected with the future, then we shall stop being abstract and become concrete. Then we shall no longer be such dried-up, pedantic, intellectual thinkers as before, for we shall know that what is doing the thinking in our heads is actually the same thing as the light that shines about us. 
nor shall we be such one-sided people that all we feel for the light is joy. For we shall know that light contains death, a dying world. Light can give us a feeling of cosmic tragedy. Thus we get away from mere abstraction, mere thought, and come into an element of movement. And in darkness we can see the part of the future that is coming into being. We even find in it the element that incites passionate natures like Schopenhauer. In short, we go from the abstract to the concrete. Cosmic images arise before us in place of mere thoughts and abstract will impulses. That is what we were going in search of today. Next time we shall follow the track of the surprising reality we discovered today, thought becoming light and will becoming darkness and go in search of the origin of good and evil. We shall penetrate from our inner world into the cosmos and look for the reasons for good and evil, again not in an abstract, abstract religious realm, but we want to see how we can break through to a knowledge of good and evil, now that we have made a start with understanding the light aspect of thought and the dark aspect of will. More about this next time. The end of Lecture 6